Hey, good morning, everybody. My name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor for our Carmel campus. And uh, it's been a while since I've been here with you, but it's great to be back with you again. Wasn't that great this morning? The worship, wasn't that great? I, I love... I love a good worship set, and uh, there's nothing like, it's better than coffee for me in the morning. And so uh, if you go one morning, maybe you're on your way to work and you forgot to stop and get your coffee, uh, turn on some good worship music and you'll be awake by the time you get to work. It's going to be awesome. Uh, It'd be great. Hey, um, this is really cool. I have not been here since this stage was installed, and I always feel like I'm a little bit of a caged animal at Carmel. And so if I come and like don't, I'm not going to come get you, I promise. I'm just, I'm just like walking this way to talk to you. But I have a question for you this morning as we start. It's a serious question. What happens if God never gives you what you want most in life? Have you ever thought about that? Like if you believe that God is all-powerful, so he has the power to give you everything you want, and you believe like I do that God is good and he wants good for his people, Does it make it harder for you when you don't get the thing you want most? You know, when I was uh, growing up, I didn't grow up in church. I know a lot of you did, um, but I didn't grow up in church. But I did have a period of about four years in middle school and high school where I was connected with a church. My mom uh, took us to church. And the pastor used to do this thing. And if you grew up in church, maybe your pastor did this too. But the pastor would come up and he would say, God is good. And people would say, all the time. And he'd say, all the time. Yeah, and so you guys did that too. Yeah, we did that. And um, as a kid, I remember thinking, oh, that's really cool. God is good all the time. But then when something happens, when something doesn't go the way you want, or when you realize that you're not getting what you want, is it harder? Is it harder to really believe that God is good all the time? Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian and you don't get what you want, do you still follow him? Do you still believe? I mean, does it make it harder? When that doesn't happen, I mean, isn't it true that things don't always work out like we expected, that we end up in situations we never intended to be in? And that's what I want to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, open them to Deuteronomy 34. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, So it's near the beginning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor. It's page 146 in this Bible, page 146. We're in the third week of the series called How to Get Through What You're Going Through. And in this series, we've been discussing uh, how to navigate those challenging seasons of life, those times in our life where we experience pain and suffering. And we've been talking about like three stages of our faith that most of us go through as we're finding our way back to God, as we're growing in our faith. Most of us go through three stages of faith. And we've been using this map. And uh, I want to confess this morning that I actually drew this map. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this guy's not a very good preacher, but man, he's a great artist. And maybe he's missed his calling, right? That's what you're thinking. And so I've been really praying about that over the last few weeks since I was able to reveal this. Um, But but in the lower left-hand corner, as you're looking at this, is Egypt. Those are the pyramids, in case you didn't get that. Uh, This is Egypt. This is where you start. And up in the upper right is the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey like a pot of honey and a gallon of milk. It's probably more than that in the promised land, but that's our representation. And we've used this, we said in week one, you can use this diagram to really represent any goal that you're trying to achieve in life, right? If there's, there's something that you're trying to achieve, that's your promised land and Egypt is where you start. And the hard part is that the goal to, from where you are to where you wanna get goes through a desert, right? It often goes through a very difficult time. So the example I used week one is I'm training for a marathon right now. 
and I'm in a place where I can run about eight miles without stopping. And I have to get to a place where I can run 26.2 miles without stopping by April, right? And so I know that that road is gonna run through some pretty hard times. There's gonna be some pain and suffering in there. And so sometime this winter, I'm going to uh, open up my training log and it's gonna be 10 degrees outside and I'm gonna see that I have an 18 mile training run on the plan. And then I have to decide, am I going to push through, am I gonna push through that pain and suffering and get to the promised land or am I gonna turn around and go back to Egypt? And, And in your life, if you're trying to achieve a goal, we all have those decisions to make, don't we? And so we've been using this map also though to talk about our faith and these three stages of faith. So in the lower left, that Egypt, that represents the confident faith. Uh, when we find our way back to God, most of us have this confident faith. It's this time where, you know, everything seems to be working right. Like prayer's working. Uh, we're excited to read the Bible. We just can't wait to get in his word. Uh, we feel like obedience is being rewarded. And we're just full of joy and uh, full of good times, right? And so that's our confident faith. And this can last for a really long time, but it generally is at the very beginning of our finding our way back to God. And then there's this third stage of faith over here, the promised land that we're calling living faith. And we may eventually get there, but even if we're not there yet, we know people who have living faith. And this is a faith that doesn't seem to be dependent on circumstances. It's a faith uh, that is sure and secure. And even when times are tough, you hear people saying, you know what, God is good all the time. And even if we don't have that faith, it's the faith that we want to get to. It's the faith that we aspire to. But the problem is that the road to living faith always runs through challenged faith. And this time of challenged faith happens usually in our lives when we face a time of pain and suffering. We, we run into a difficult time and something happens and we don't, aren't really sure like if God is going to show up, where is he? Does he hear us? Does he even understand what we're going through? And we go through this time of challenged faith. But, but the problem is the road always goes through challenged faith. And so if we want to get to living faith, we've got to go through the desert. And we said last week, eventually, that God takes everyone he loves through a desert. Because it's in the desert that we can build our faith. And you may be in that stage now, or maybe you remember a time in your history when you've gone through challenged faith. But if you're here, and if you're a Christian, and you're not in a desert now, and you don't remember a time you've ever been in the desert, I just... I hate to break the news to you, but you're going to go through a desert. You're going to go through a time when your faith is challenged. And when you do, how you respond to it is going to be the the one decision you get to make about whether you continue on to that living faith that we all aspire to, or we turn around and go to challenge faith, or go to confident, go back to Egypt, go back to our confident faith. And so this series is all about how we respond in those times of challenge. Our response in this season is crucial as it has everything to do with how we come out at the other end. And so in this series, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the story of the nation of Israel. And you know, God created everybody, but he had this special group of people called the Israelites that were his chosen people. And uh, we started with their time in Egypt. They were being held as slaves and God called Moses as a man to help free his people from slavery. And uh, Moses was to lead them into the promised land. God said, I will take you out of the land of Egypt, and I will bring you to a land, a beautiful land, a verdant land flowing with milk and honey. And God never said anything about the desert. He didn't say anything about what's going to happen to you. I'm going to take you out of here and put you here. And so uh, when they get to the desert, well, this probably isn't what the people of Israel expected. 
You know, they get to the desert and they go through this dry and barren land. They're expecting a green land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they end up in a desert, in a barren land. And this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. But God doesn't say we won't encounter bad things. You know that even with a good God, you can encounter bad things, right? You know, the Bible doesn't say we won't see bad things. It says that God can use all things for good for those who love him. God can use good things and God can use bad things. But the desert is not the place the Israelites expected to find themselves. This is not the picture of rescue that they had in mind. The desert is long and it's difficult and this road is filled with challenges. And at first we see the nation of Israel crying out to God. You remember this uh, week one, we talked about the posture of crying out, that the Israelites are crying out to God, but eventually the longest road, or the road is long and it's, it's desolate and they end up complaining to God. You remember that? We talked about the posture of crying out and complaining. And so then last week, we talked about how Moses went up on the mountain to receive the 10 commandments from God. And he was gone so long that nobody knew where he went or what had happened to him. And so they had his brother Aaron make them a God. They made a God. We said that they wanted something to hold on to. And, and that uh, remember, we talked about how in our life, sometimes we don't really look for things to replace God, but we look for something to hold in addition to God, right? It's like God plus something else that we often do that as well. And, and we need to remind ourselves to let those things go. And so, you, I, I don't know if you guys did this here. We did this at Carmel. It was a pretty powerful illustration. We're like, we're holding on to something. And we had this moment where we all just like surrendered, surrendered it to God. We just let it go. And what that felt like uh, to let those things we've been holding on to go. Well, as we continue in our story today, we're going to look at quite a few passages of Scripture. But I want to skip ahead to kind of the end of the story of uh, Moses first. Now, at this point, uh, where we get to in Deuteronomy 34, Moses has been leading the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years. It's a 40-year journey in the desert. Just think about that for a minute, especially if you're in a desert right now. 40 years. But now they're on the brink of the promised land. It's where he finds himself. And this is where we see what happens. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah along, uh, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Now, you may know where none of those places are, but let me just tell you, it's a big place. All right, it's a big land. It's a lot of land. This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. Now, imagine what this is like for Moses. Okay, just stop right there for a minute. Imagine what this is like for Moses. 40 years. 40 years he's led the people of Israel. God has been telling him about this place, and now he stands on top of the mountain, and he can see all of it. And he looks around, and you, you can just can you just imagine that Moses like, takes this deep breath as he surveys this whole land, and it's like God is giving all of this to it. He must have felt like Jack Dawson in Titanic, like, I'm king of the world, you know, and he's standing on top of this mountain, ready to go in. But God is not finished yet. Verse four, he continues. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab as the Lord had said. Wait, what? Moses doesn't get to go? He's led these people for 40 years. And he doesn't get to go to the promised land? Think about this. Moses was the one God gave this mission to. Like when the people were complaining, 
they were complaining about Moses. You know, Moses had to keep going back to Pharaoh and asking for his people to be let go. And Pharaoh would say no and slam the door in his face. And God said, go back again. And he'd go back again. And he did that 10 times before Pharaoh let the people go. He was faithful in that. And he isn't gonna go. I mean, when, when the people had questions about what they were gonna do next and how were they to settle their disputes or, or where they were gonna go, Moses was the one they came to. When, when Moses was overwhelmed, the first place he went was to God. Moses didn't complain to the people. He did what he was supposed to do. And Moses doesn't get to go? And even when no one else in Israel was faithful, Moses was faithful. I don't like this part of the story. I gotta be honest with you. I don't think it's fair. I don't know if you've thought about that or not, but I just don't think it's fair. The one thing that Moses wanted once, God never gave him. And in the same way it happened for Moses, we don't like it when things don't happen the way we want, do we? We don't like it. It's not fair. So what is it for you? And what's that thing that hasn't gone exactly as you planned it would? I know for many of you, it's a relationship. Like a relationship ended and you don't know why it ended or it's not going well and you can see an end in sight. It's not going well and you can't see an end in sight. Something's just not right about it. Maybe for you, it's, uh, it's health, it's sickness, it's an injury. You didn't ask for it, you didn't do anything to deserve it, but it's there and you don't know how it's gonna end, but it's not turned out the way you expected. For many of you, it's, it's harsh words or hurt or wounds from a family member or a close friend. And for some of you, it's financial. Maybe you've made some mistakes in the past, but you thought you could get out of them, or maybe it wasn't you, but you just ended up in a financial place you never thought you'd be. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen, but whatever it is, things don't always go the way we plan. You know, when I made my decision to leave the corporate world about five years ago and come into ministry, uh, my wife and we prayed about it. We prayed about it a lot, my wife and I did. And we talked about it. We thought about, you know, what is gonna be the impact on our friends, on our kids, What's going to be the financial impact? You know, how is it going to affect where we live and what we do on a week-to-week basis? And we talked about all those things. We prayed about all those things. God gave us great resolution on those things. We just felt like God really honored those prayers. Um, And it's been really, really good. It's been a great transition for me. I think it's been good for Genesis 2. But honestly, you know, there's been some things that have been tough about it and some things that maybe I didn't expect. It's been tough on my kids at times. Um, They have a good life and they know they're loved and But you have to know, like as the pastor's kid, there are different expectations for my kids than there are for your kids. And while this church is really uh, graceful, grace-filled towards them, they feel it. I mean, they feel the weight of the expectation. And they know that on any given week, their behavior could become a sermon illustration. And your kids don't have to worry about that. (laughs) And my kids do. They know that if they're goofing around with three or four of their friends in the cafe, all eyes are gonna be on my kids. Because as the instigator, you know, they're going to be the ones that should know better because they're the pastor's kids. So it's been tough on them. Something I didn't anticipate. Uh, sometimes it's been hard financially. Uh, don't get me wrong. You guys are a generous church. Thank you for your tithes and offerings, by the way. <laughs> appreciate that. My family appreciates that. Um, you guys are very generous. Our elders are very generous people. Um, but still, I mean, the church world doesn't pay what the corporate world does. Let's just be honest. And uh, we've had to make some sacrifices. And you guys know all about that. That's nothing new for you. Um, God prepared us financially. We've never felt, you know, we never led an extravagant lifestyle anyway, so that's not been difficult. But just like you, we have to make difficult choices about how much we save and how much we spend and where we go on vacation and what we eat and what we spend on clothes. And, and that's not new to any of you, but we're in a different place than we were five years ago. But I think where it's been the hardest on me, honestly, has been my identity. You know, 
like most men, like most men in the suburbs, we get a large part of our identity from what we do for a living, like how good we are at our job and, and how much influence we're able to have and uh, you know, how successful I'm being. And it went from doing, I went from doing something that I had 20 years experience of doing to like starting over at zero. And honestly, at first, when we launched the Carmel campus four years ago, it grew really fast, like 30% a year. And honestly, I probably took way too much credit for that. Uh, but then when the growth slowed, I mean, we're still growing, but like we're growing at 10% a year now. And I start to ask all these questions, like, what am I doing wrong? And how could I be better? Uh, do I need to change the way I preach? Do I need to change what we're doing at the Carmel campus? Am I even cut out for this? I start to ask those questions. Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? God, is this really what you have me doing for the next season of my life? I mean, because I think, I think, I think, I think what I've always wanted from God is to have influence. Like, I want to see lots and lots of people find their way back to God. And when that's not happening all the time, I start to question, my God, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? I think that's what I want. And God hasn't given it to me yet. Turn back in your Bible to Numbers 13. I want to back up the story for a moment. I want you to see how Moses arrived at this place. Uh, This wasn't the first time Moses and the people had stood on the precipice of the promised land. They've been here before. Um, 40 years ago, they were in the very same position. Numbers 13 is where we're going to be. Numbers 13.1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so this is the place they had just come out of Egypt. They get to the edge of the promised land. God says, go send some spies. So Moses picks 12 men uh, to go spy on this land. These men go into the land. They're there for 40 days. And they come back with this report, Numbers 13, 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And they bring a sample of the fruit of this land, and it's enormous. And people have never seen fruit like this. And you can imagine wandering in the desert for 40 years, that fruit's going to look pretty good to you, right? I mean, even if you're not really into vegetables and fruit that much, I mean, some good, healthy fruit is going to look good for you. So Moses was pretty excited, but then came the bad news, verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, Anak was believed to have uh, very large children, very large people as their descendants. Uh, Verse 31, let's skip down a little bit. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Do you see what's happening with their report? Any trust that the people had in God was gone. They no longer see like God as their provider, God as their influencer, God as their power. But now they see, oh man, there's some big scary people there. We can't go in. God has provided so much. And in one moment, the faith they had is shattered. They they start making plans to return to Egypt. They'd rather go back into slavery than try to face these giant people in front of them. But we do the same thing, don't we? Don't we do the same thing? We forget how God has provided for us. We forget how God has delivered us. We are tempted to return to bad habits, to unhealthy relationships, to abusing that substance because we go looking for relief. We just want to get out of the difficult times. We want to dull the pain. We turn to anything other than God. It's the God plus something else we talked about last week. Look what happens next. Numbers 14, uh, verse 6. 
Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. This is a Um, ancient symbol of mourning. So it's like they're mourning, okay? They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. Joshua and Caleb understand this. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Do you see the living faith in these words? Like Caleb and Joshua had living faith. Like they weren't affected by their circumstances. They had faith that God was going to deliver them right where God said he would deliver them. At least some people have learned something in the desert, right? But everyone's burying their courage. And, and, the, and the people break God's heart by refusing to take the land. If you look in verse 11, Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of, look at this, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? Let me ask you, how long will you refuse to believe in a God who's performed great signs and wonders in your life? When you think about that, some of us have seen God do some amazing things in the past, but now our circumstances point to something different. And we start to wonder, like, where's he gone? Is he still there? That's exactly what's happening with Israel. They saw some amazing things in the past, but now their circumstances have changed. As a consequence for their sin and disobedience, Israel is gonna wander for 40 years in the desert. It's one year for each of the days the spies scoped out the promised land, 40 years for 40 days. And during that time, every grown adult, except two courageous men, Caleb and Joshua, every grown adult is going to die and only the children will get to see the promised land. Seems a little unfair, right? Especially for Moses. Moses is gonna miss it. He led the people all this way. He doesn't get to go in. After all he endured, after all he went through, he doesn't get to experience that gift. He doesn't get the thing that he wants the most. And I think one of the reasons this bothers us is because it forces us to ask that question, that question that I asked up front. What if God never gives you what you want most? That's the situation that Moses finds himself in. What if I never receive what I hope for? What if going through all of this never gets rid of my pain and suffering? So this leads to an important question that we haven't really tried to answer so far in this series. Um, Why? Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? It's the hardest part about pain. It's the question that as a pastor, when somebody comes to me uh, with with a difficult time, it's what they always want to know. Why am I going through this? And I always counsel people. I'm a terrible counselor, by the way, so don't come to me for counseling. But, I'm a, but, but I do know this. When somebody comes to me and asks in my pain and suffering, why is this happening? I always say, no, you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask why. We may never know why. This side of heaven, we may never know why we go through pain and suffering. But the question that we can answer is how. Like, how are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to get through what we're going through? And so that's, that's the question that I always want to ask. That's the question for today. How do we respond in the suffering? You know, Viktor Frankl was arrested by Nazi soldiers in October of 1944. And not just Viktor, but his wife and his mother and father as well. They were sentenced to Auschwitz, um, which is probably the most notorious prison camp 
from, from uh, Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Frankel survived Auschwitz. Rader wrote the book called Man's Search for Meaning about his experience during the war. Um, but his wife and mother and father all died in their prison camp experience. He talked about the, the fear and the anticipation of uh, forced labor, of starvation, of brutal beatings, and the constant threat of the gas chambers. And because his whole family died at Auschwitz, he, he was, uh, the suffering he endured was unthinkable. And, and to this day, the war, World War II, is still one of those things that we all have that question of, like, why did it happen? Why, why did we have to go through this? And I'm sure that no one who lived through prison camp experience would ever want to go back. But Frankel talked about, often wrote about, the things that he learned and the things that he experienced during his time at Auschwitz. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he sums up his experience like this. He says, suffering in and of itself is meaningless. We give our suffering meaning by the way in which we respond to it. Forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. You cannot control what happens to you in life, but you can always control what you feel and do about what happens to you. Mm. So as you think about that thing that's causing you pain and grief, I can't offer you an answer to the why question, but we can talk about how we respond. And so uh, these, are, these are in your notes. If you have the app out or if you have your note card, um, you might want to write these down. Uh, as we think about that one thing, there are two things we can do. Number one is this. Let your suffering transform you. Let your suffering transform you. Because if you let it, your suffering will change you. It can, it can transform you. Uh, let me give you an example. How many of you are familiar with the relatively recent fitness phenomenon called CrossFit? Anybody know CrossFit? Okay, so if you don't know, CrossFit is this uh, seemingly random combination of barbell exercises, gymnastic movements, and high-intensity cardio uh, that, that is supposed to build great fitness. And uh, I've had the opportunity to take a few CrossFit classes in my life, and so let me just tell you a couple things about CrossFit. Number one, CrossFit is the opposite of Fight Club. Okay, so rule number one is you always talk about CrossFit. And so if you ever meet somebody, you don't have to ask, do you do CrossFit? Because in the first three minutes of the conversation, it will inevitably come up, okay? So um, number two, you don't do a workout routine. You do a WOD, workout of the day, uh, W-O-D. So you do a WOD. You don't um, go to a gym. You go to a box when you're at CrossFit. And so one of the first WODs that they will give you is to check in on Facebook to let all your friends know that you're doing CrossFit at their gym, at their box, right? The third thing is um, you'll go there to work out. But inevitably, in the first time you're there, people will start talking about your diet and asking about what you eat. And, and at CrossFit, it's like bizarro world. All the stuff that you think is healthy is unhealthy, and all the stuff you think is unhealthy is healthy. And so a good CrossFit diet might consist of pot roast, hamburgers, and bacon, uh, all at the same meal. But no green beans, because green beans are legumes, and legumes aren't bad for they cause inflammation. So stay away from green beans, but eat lots of, lots of meat. In fact, in fact, I think paleo is Latin for lots of meat. And so um, that's what you need to know about CrossFit. What you can't deny about CrossFit, though, what you can't deny about CrossFit is that, one, the exercises cause lots of pain and suffering. And there's lots of pain and suffering when you do a CrossFit wad. The second thing is the people who do it and stick with it are some of the fittest people you will ever meet. In fact, uh, they have a world championship of CrossFit every year. They've done this for nine years now. It's called the CrossFit Games. And they call the male and female winners of the CrossFit Games are called the fittest on earth. 
And this year, 2016, the fittest on earth is a man named Matt Fraser. And Matt Fraser had this to say. I love this quote. He said, no, I don't have an addiction to suffering. Because if you see somebody like that, you might think they have an addiction to suffering. He says, I don't have an addiction to suffering. I have an addiction to what the product of suffering is. So good. Because suffering can transform us, right? Suffering can change us. See, I think our, our natural instincts when we go through suffering is to try to hold it all together. Guys, I'm talking to you. When we go through suffering, our natural instinct is to push it down, to act like nothing's wrong, to pretend that we can make it. Yeah, it's hard, but I'm a survivor. Like I'm an, I'm an overcomer. I'm gonna get through this. I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and we're gonna turn this thing around. Like we're just gonna, we're gonna make it and let nobody know what's happening. That's not a biblical response to suffering. Sometimes we really need to let suffering break us down so that it can build us back up. Hebrews 5.8 reminds us of this about Jesus. It said, Jesus, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Suffering changed Jesus. Suffering taught Jesus obedience and unwanted suffering can transform us too. It can change our character. And so as you venture through the desert, my piece of advice to you is this, don't rush out. Don't rush out of the desert. Instead, ask God to teach you something. In fact, maybe that's part of the prayer you pray today. Father, what do you want me to learn? Make me receptive to what you wanna teach me. You see, if we allow God to transform us during these seasons of challenged faith, we might just find that a living faith begins to grow inside of us, a faith that's not contingent on our circumstances, on what we're going through. We can choose to let suffering transform us. That's the first thing. Number two is this, the other way we can respond. How can we respond? Number two, we can let suffering draw you closer to the Lord. Let suffering draw you closer to the Lord. Did Moses lose? Did Moses miss out? on something. Is he a failure? Is his story a tragic one of lost purpose and significance? Listen to how his story is memorialized in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Did Moses miss out? Was he robbed of something that he deserved? Keep this in mind. And if you're not a Christian, this might be really hard for you to understand and accept. But if you are a Christian, it's an important reminder. We deserve nothing. We deserve death. I mean, everything that we have, the best among us, deserve death for our sin and disobedience. Everything that we have, that everything that's given to us is a gift. It's the grace of God. And so to the question, did Moses miss out? Did Moses uh, miss something he deserved? The answer is not at all. In fact, Moses received a greater reward. Notice those words, Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Isn't that really the goal for each of us? Like, shouldn't that be the goal for us? Like to have that intimacy, to Lord the, know the Lord face to face. It's all about intimacy with him. That's what we're after, a deep and intimate connection to the God of the universe. I mean, what changes if we view that as the thing we want most? What if a close, deep, abiding relationship with God, what if intimacy with him is our greatest desire? How would our attitude change 
if that was the thing that we most wanted in life? What if we allowed every day of our suffering to draw us just a little bit closer to the Lord? And what if the intimacy became the thing our soul craved more? I'll tell you what would happen. We would do what James tells us to do when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because we know those trials would draw us closer to the Lord. If we, if we always anticipated or allowed our suffering to draw us closer to the Lord, we wouldn't run away from it. We would anticipate it. We would, we would long for suffering because we know that closeness with God would be the thing that we wanted most. Moses didn't miss out on the promised land. He received an even greater promised land. He received intimacy with his father, eternity with the father in heaven. And it's the same promise that Jesus offers to us. In John 17, three, he says this, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know the Lord face to face, to know Jesus as Lord, that your eternity is secure with him. It's the best kind of promised land. So there may be no good question to the why, but we have the opportunity to choose how. I pray that it would be your desire today to know the Lord as Moses knew the Lord, to know him face to face, to know him as Jesus knew the Lord, as Jesus knew his father, trusting him, sold out to him, fully dependent on him. Let's pray together. Father, um, I confess that I sometimes get so caught up in the things of this world that I can see those as what I want. And I know my relationship with you suffers as a result. And Lord, I just have a feeling in this room that I'm not alone, that that's not just from me. And so God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us this week to see and feel and understand that what you want most is intimacy with us. God, make us desperate for that. Lord, help us to see that that is the greatest gift, the greatest reward, the greatest promised land that we could ever ask for, to have a close, abiding relationship with you who created us, who loves us, who deeply desires that relationship with us. God, thank you that you allow suffering to transform us. And thank you that you give us the choice to turn back around to Egypt when we wanna go, but to push through with you by our side, with you with us onto the promised land. I pray these things in Jesus' name. So uh, we're gonna just close the service with a song about being determined to praise God no matter what. And like we've done in this series, this is a song that we're gonna sing over you. We don't need you to, you're welcome to sing it, but you don't need to stand and sing it if you don't want. But just listen and reflect on your own faith. And uh, I hope this helps build your determination to praise him at all times.
Sing your praise. 
our time together. God, what a hard determination to sing your praise, only your praise, even when it hurts. God, as we go this week, help us to do that. Help us to know that you are good all the time, that all the time you are good. And even when we don't see it and even when we don't feel it, that you are working together for our good, for those who love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.